Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Asha Nayaswamy. Uh, Asha, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you. I'm just delighted to have been invited. So Asha, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey. Um, you know, what led you on the spiritual path? From the earliest memories I have of childhood, I was always intensely interested in serious subjects. I, I was never a frivolous child. And when I became a student, I just, I wanted to know what was true. I wanted to know what would really help me to find happiness in life. I just, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't relate to much of what other people thought was of value. When I was pre-university, the only thing I really liked was theater. I guess because it was just a fantasy anyway, so it didn't really make any difference. Um, and I, I went I went to my first year of college, I was accepted at Stanford University, which was impressive at the time, but not like now. Now you have to be the, the son of a, a, a lifelong monarch practically to get in, but, <laughs> but I managed to get in. But I was intensely disappointed in the first two weeks because I could see that they were interested in knowledge, but they weren't interested in wisdom, which is a distinction I was beginning to understand. They were intelligent, but they weren't wise. They were knowledgeable, but they weren't wise. Wise in the things that seemed important. So I basically partied my way through one year of school and um, got nowhere. I was here in the Palo Alto area and the Grateful Dead was just beginning to form right in my neighborhood. So pretty much every Friday night, I went to wherever the Grateful Dead was playing, even though they were completely unknown at that point. And I just danced my, I danced my way through high school for the, through my one year of university and I quit. And right after that, I, I came, I formed a new group of friends and they were intensely interested in spiritual life. I never thought I had never thought that what I was really looking for was spiritual in any sense. To me, it was meaning and truth. And then I began to find that the two overlapped. And it was 1966. So in America, there was just this big influx of Indian influence to America. And I started reading books about Indian uh, swamis and, and then Catholic saints and Protestant missionaries, anybody who'd really done something really big with their life. So I was very interested, but I was still at sea. I just didn't know what to do with any of that. I wasn't, I wasn't a Protestant or Catholic or a Hindu. I was actually Jewish. So what, where, did I, where did I fit into the whole thing? Um, and then I met Swami Kriyananda. Swami Kriyananda, uh, who's, he, he died 10 years ago. He uh, was an American man with an Indian name. He'd become the disciple of an Indian master named Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, which is a seminal book for anyone who steps outside of the mainstream and starts thinking um, globally about spirituality. When I met Swami Kriyananda, I was 22. He, he walked into the room and I was beginning to believe in reincarnation, but because of how I felt when I saw him, I know it must be true. I just recognized him. Uh, in some non-comprehensible uh, non way. I knew that he had 
he had figured out what I was trying desperately to figure out. And I knew that he could transfer that understanding to me. And I, I made a decision in about 30 seconds that I, that has been the consistent defining energy of my life for more than 50 years now. It's just, I saw it. I saw a human being who had the state of consciousness. And these are words I learned later. He had the state of consciousness that I knew I was seeking and I'd never seen it before. And nothing else mattered to me. He was starting a community up in the mountains, this rural place, really rural is not the right word, primitive is the right word. And it took me a little bit of time. I had to extricate myself from a few things, but I just threw my lot in with his and never looked back. Beautiful, wow. So you ended up moving um, to this, uh, not rural, but uh, this uh, <laughs> forestry kind of place um, in order to live with him and practice. I would have gone wherever Kriyananda was. If he was living in an igloo in Antarctica, I would have had an igloo in Antarctica. The fact that it was in the Sierra Nevada mountains, not that far from where I was living anyway, that it was in America, that it was California, all of that was like, that was great because it was just so natural to me to be part of that. I'd never, I'd never even been camping. And all of a sudden I was, I lived for six months in a tent, you know, with no amenities of any kind. But it was so such a marvelous adventure. And, and Swamiji, as I called him, was so, he just fulfilled what I was looking for. He was so, um, he lived what he taught. He, he exemplified it in himself. He was a brilliant teacher, which was just like extra. You know, you can have a, a, a spiritual teacher who hardly ever speaks, and still he can transmit the teachings to you. But, but Kriyananda was articulate and brilliant and funny and uh, just a marvelous friend in addition to being a wonderful teacher. And he, because he was the disciple of a great master, Paramahansa Yogananda is a great master, he just, there was a, there was a, a, a quality of clarity about everything that he conveyed that just resonated with every part of me. That's where the reincarnation part comes in. You know, I look back on my childhood even, and I can see that I was born, I was born where I left off the last time, which was, I was, I was a serious spiritual seeker. Obviously I died. I was reborn as a Western child, but I never lost the mindset. I didn't know, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the uh, understanding. I never lost the mindset that life is, life is, life is two things. Life is extremely serious. We're here for a real reason. We're just not here to party our way through, which is what I tried. It didn't really work. At the same time, life is meant to be joyful and suffering is not, suffering is an aberration, a necessary learning experience, but joy is our true nature. And those were the things that I knew from being very young and nobody around me seemed to comprehend it until I met Swamiji. And then I just was home again. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. And how did you find um, the transition from being in this very um, busy kind of lifestyle, which is um, almost promoted in the West, uh, to living out in, the, in, in nature in a tent, 
um, with somebody who holds a very deep sense of presence um, and doesn't prioritize achievement, you know, doing things over being. How did you find that transition? In fact, the dichotomy that you set up was not what I found at all, because uh, Swami Kriyananda himself had been commissioned by his guru. The commission was, you have a great work to do. And so Swami Kriyananda was the most energetic, creative, productive, active person uh, by 10 times, by a factor of 10, of anybody I knew. And we were not out there to live in tents forever. We were pioneering what Yogananda had predicted would be a new lifestyle for an ascending age, which is you know all the context that I lived in, which was intentional communities based on shared values. And Ananda, the community I was living in then, Ananda Village it's called now, was the, was the first and it was the prototype for what now we have, what, uh, communities in, we have about six or seven communities around the world, including I now live in Palo Alto, California, because I helped found a second community, another community here later. But we were working all the time. I'd never been so busy in my life. But the difference was we were working for a cause that we believed in, for something that was within our hands to create. Um, we, we were working with a, a, a much deeper understanding of even why a person would, would put out energy to create something. We profoundly believed in what we were doing. I still do. And that's what I've been looking for. I was very, I'm a very energetic, active person. I'm, I meditate, but I'm not a contemplative by any stretch of the imagination. And I wanted to be able to use my energy for something that I felt was worth, worth the effort. And when I found it, I just threw myself in without ever looking back. I, my first assignment for a number of years was cooking, which I'd never done before, but I loved it. I was, we had a, we had a retreat for guests, plus we had, we were feeding the community and I was almost solely responsible for about the feeding of at least 30 people, three meals a day, six days a week. And on the seventh day, I drove into town, which was half an hour away with in a big pickup truck and I've filled the pickup truck with everybody's laundry and I did everybody's laundry and then filled the pickup truck with food for the following week and drove back out again and started the whole thing over. I, I, it was heaven on earth. I've never been happier. It was just absolutely wonderful with great friends. You know, there were more of us. Swamiji attracted quite a few people and we were just, it was, uh, I've it was just so much fun. And it was so much fun to be in primitive conditions and to be far away from civilization, so to speak. But at the same time, we were also very deeply connected because uh, people would come to us. And then from time to time, we would take little forays out and uh, give programs about what we were doing and teach people to meditate and talk to them about spiritual life and about communities. And so it was always, and even to this day, it's very balanced. Meditation is a central practice, but meditation informs um, selfless service. And you know, there's a whole philosophical uh, construct around that, but it's temperamentally suits me. And as for being in the country, as for living in a tent, have, as for having no amenities, as for having no money, having none of that, I, I, 
I barely blinked. It took me about 15 minutes to adjust. It was just because there were real values in place. And those real values were so, well, rich is the word I want to use, so profoundly satisfying. That's what people hunger for these days. Friendship, meaningful work, something that, that we can really believe in, and some sense of influence over your own destiny. And that, that was all handed to me. So I, what, more, what do I need with money? And I didn't need money for, I mean, and whenever I've needed money, somehow I've also had it. Just you, you put, you align yourself on the fundamentals. It's not that I've ever scorned money. It's just that I never, we all had to earn money because we had to pay a mortgage. We had to support ourselves. So we were never, we never had a patron or anything like that. So we we're always having to think in terms of earning money, but it was always for the sake of what we were doing. It wasn't mm, for personal aggrandizement. What was this vision that you guys were working towards? What was this deeper calling that you felt um, that, that drove you um, into this? And, and do you feel that you've achieved this greater vision that you as a group set out to um, work on, you know, a fair few years ago now? Very good questions. The greater vision was the belief that through the practice of meditation and in our case, discipleship to a particular line of masters, it's a, it's a universal value that we apply in a specific way. But through the practice of meditation, one could come to know oneself on a far deeper, more lasting level than just the external definitions that most of us think of when we speak of ourselves. Male, female, culture, talents, all those sorts of things, physical age, you know, everything that, that we normally say, use the pronoun I, that's what we're referring to. The trouble is all of those things are um, mutable. They're gradually, they're all changing. And there is the, the simple problem of death, which most people don't think about, but when death just takes all that away, there's also the vagaries of fate, so to speak, where you're on the top of the world today on in the bottom of the world tomorrow. There's the problem of if we grow dependent upon other people for our happiness, they might have other ideas about where their happiness comes from. So we are endlessly vulnerable as long as we are defining ourselves in an external way. The practice of meditation awakens us to what is essentially the underlying energy that manifests as all these things, but the pronoun I becomes more deeply attached to that everlasting flow of inner reality. And when we ground ourselves on that everlasting flow, then we can do all the rest of this. We can marry, we can have children. I mean, the mere fact that I didn't follow a lot of those paths doesn't mean that a person can't, but it. But one acts not from outer habit or outer compulsion, but from a deep awareness of inner calling. And so much of the confusion in our world today is because people are just acting superficially. They're just taking the pieces and they're moving them around like this. And we're not deeply grounded. And when we become deeply grounded in that inner reality, we also recognize that the reality that is me is equally the reality that is you and you and you and you. And all of these things that 
people are using to divide themselves, none of them really matter compared to this deep inner reality. It's not that we will always agree, but there can be a completely different sense of compassion and unity. And, and this is the salvation of our age, is this deepening self-realization. You know, who am I? What is real? What creates happiness? What causes suffering? And, and, I, and you know, my brothers and sisters and I, we share this life together. That, that's the message and the meaning. And in that way of life, um, what, what we're, we're all really seeking, we, we can actually begin to find it instead of just hope for it. And this has been my experience all this time. So a community helps because we're such a small group, such a small minority to live in harmony and cooperation with like-minded people makes it infinitely easier to, to hold to these ideals. It's also a perfect training ground for long-lasting unconditional love for your fellow man, your fellow woman. It, it, I have had the same friends for decades and we haven't always liked each other. We've had, you know, it's life is like that. We've had positive and negative periods. There was two of my best friends didn't speak to me for about seven years, but we got over it. You know, <laughs> we went on. <laughs> but you know, you you it, 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 life becomes very rich, and it's it's um people recognize the truth of this, and they recognize it when they see it lived. Uh, my my particular role in this from the very start, even when I was just cooking for everybody, which I still do sometimes, is that uh, I Swami Kriyananda taught me and I shared it with others and I've been doing it. Now I do it all over the world. And am I satisfied? Do I feel like it's been a worthwhile life? I can hardly believe I've been so fortunate. And And because I've always been in touch with the public, with people who are either just getting acquainted or relatively new to what I've now been doing a long time, I constantly am reminded of what an extraordinary blessing it is to, to learn just a few of these principles and then put them into practice. They change everything. So I'm, I'm like a, a first grader, both in what I see there is to learn and also in my enthusiasm for school, because I'm always meeting new students and we're always starting over and being all excited all over again. That's beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um, and I can really gauge uh, talking to you uh, by your deep sense of presence, you know, and, and this inner happiness that you seem to have cultivated over all these years um, of working on that. Uh, do you find that you have days where you feel um, sad or agitated or you know do you still get a lot of those emotions that rise and, and fluctuate or do you find that you have because of all these years of, of practicing meditation and um, practicing that inner presence do you find that you've really calmed down quite a lot and um, leveled out? I have calmed down but I started so agitated <laughs> that the mere fact that I've calmed down does not mean that I'm calm it only means that I'm infinitely better than I was. I'm a very emotional person. I have very strong feelings about everything. When I, um, when I moved from the country to the city and I needed to present myself with more 
um, finesse, more polish than I needed when I was living in the woods. I happened to have a very good friend who was a, a consultant for fashion and color and all that. So I, I've never been much of a girl type girl, but I, I needed to like, in the area that I live in, Palo Alto, which is Silicon Valley, which is, you know, if, if you don't know how to at least make yourself look not horrible, then people will wonder what's wrong with you. So I go to this consultant, she gives me a whole set of a color palette to work with and all sorts of things. And she says, I'm not going to give you any neutrals, speaking in the color palette, no neutrals, because you never are. That's what she said. <laughs> so starting from where I started, absolutely. I'm a totally different person than I was, but I still have my anxieties. I still have my moments much less, but there's a, there's a long way to go. I have a long way to go, but I know the road and I, I can see from the distance I've covered that if I just keep on as I'm keeping on, whatever bumps, whatever uh, rents there are in the fabric, they'll gradually be mended. And, and really to be fair, um, just the understanding that of how much we can actually control our, our inner experience is very, very deep in me now. And so even if I get swept away by a wave or something like that, it doesn't, it doesn't generally last as long. I mean, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm working with is I've been working in the last few years, I'm, the details are unimportant, but I've been, caught, I've been caught in a very complex situation within our community with people who are good friends of mine that have a, has a powerful effect on my whole life's work. And it's been a mess. And here we are right in the middle of Ananda and still we have karma. So I, I use the mantra a lot. Why do I ever worry about anything? Because I know that God is in charge. So what, what I'm working with now, let me bring it to a clearer focus. I have seen how the divine works things out in ways that might not be my choice, but always work out better than my choices would have been. And I've seen that over long periods of time. And I absolutely know it's true. I absolutely know it's true, except when I forget. And so then when I forget, I spin out into all kinds of other things. But the way I bring myself back is I say, has, has, has Divine Mother ever failed me? No, never. Has my guru ever failed me? No, never. And why am I worried about this now? And I don't have a quick glib answer. It's just, oh, because we still have subconscious habits that haven't yet surrendered to, to a better way of thinking. And there's just more karma, there's more work to do. So did you find with your, um, with your guru, was he, um, his presence, um, I'm, I'm, as you were saying, really captivated you from the moment that you first saw him? Do you think that he embodied that uh, which you're working towards, where he had fully cultivated that space within himself, that he didn't really fluctuate too much? He held that state of presence he was you know glowing all the time um do you think that he reached that the first, the short answer is yes but i but there's one thing that when when you actually have a long close association with a highly advanced soul which is i knew swami kriyananda for 45 years for the first 16 i lived in the same community that he was in but all the years of his life 
I was always in close association with him. I traveled with him. I visited him wherever he was in the world. I was on email. I was on phone. So I was always with him. And I saw him in many different circumstances. He was very natural. You know, we have, we have an idea in our mind that a highly advanced person is somehow uh, doesn't function in the same way that you or I would function. And, when, and, and Swami Kriyananda talked to us a lot about Paramahansa Yogananda, who was his guru. And he spoke of him in the same way. When, when a, even when a highly advanced soul comes into this world to help teach us, they have to behave a lot like us or else they're not much of a teacher. If they just sit over in the corner and chant Om, and then when the house burns down, says, say, oh my, you know, and then just walk out the door. It's like the, the, there's no connecting link. Someone like Swami Kriyananda, and as he spoke of Paramhansa Yogananda, you realize that we live on multiple levels at the same time. So Swami was very active and very involved in the world and would put out tremendous energy and would, would cogitate about problems and would have discussions with us and was about how, what we ought to do and would change his mind and would weep when we suffered and would become very inward and reflective when faced with some personal challenge or situational challenge. He didn't just sail through as if none of this was real. Um, so he, he helped us understand how to fight the good fight, you might say, you know, how to really try to accomplish in this world, be disappointed, be thwarted, be defeated, pick yourself up again, go forward, have unfair things ha happen, have, have evil people try to hurt you, you know, have deep personal disappointments when things don't turn out the way you hoped. But what he taught us was much more than just sailing through untouched. What he taught us was how to pull yourself together and persevere and, and how to find the energy to overcome, how to understand and for, forgive and accept. So underneath all of that, <clears throat> what he had was, <clears throat> and I would put it in the present tense because time and space and death are no obstacle to the consciousness of these people, these beings. What he had was just this unrelenting attunement with the power of the divine and a, a, an, an, an unshakable conviction that he would persevere to the end. And that no matter how tough the going, no matter how disappointing, we just find another route and keep going. And no matter how many up and down days we had in the course of that, you see that then you realize there's many levels. It can be tumultuous here and still steady and strong underneath it. And, and it's that steady and strong underneath that is far more the definition of a person than uh, a, a smile on the face that never goes away. If that, if that makes sense. I wrote a, a book about Swami Kriyananda. It's, I say it's a, it's a big book. I'm holding it like in my hand. When I saw it published, I said, this is going to sell a lot of ebooks because it's very heavy. But I wrote, <laughs> I wrote year by year, forty-five chapters every year. What, what Swamiji did, why he did it, what happened, and it's a, it's a drama. It's not a cakewalk at all. It's called Light Bearer. Light Bearer, great. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes below for people who are interested in reading about it um, to try and understand him better and understand him through your eyes as well. 
There's also, I, I recorded the book. Many people tell me that the audio book that I read is the best version because I could really see it when I was reading it. So there's an extra dimension in that. Plus you can get it over, over the universe. There's an ebook and an audio book. So you don't have to get the five pound book for yourself. <laughs> Two and a half pounds, actually. That's all it is. <laughs> you, were, you were mentioning the different t states of consciousness and you were saying there's one deep seated one, you know, that's relatively calm and uh, there's people working on um, the normal state of consciousness, I guess. And then there's a higher state. Maybe could you mind talking us through what those different states of consci consciousness are? Um, what is the superconscious mind? All of that. The, the basic premise is that we, we are living only one part of a, we are part of a greater reality. We are connected to a greater reality. We have a far greater reality than most people are conscious of. It's influencing us all the time, but most people are not conscious of it. We just operate in our brain and we think that's all there is. Um, in, in simplified form, there are basically th three levels that we work with. The subconscious, the conscious, and the superconscious. Subconscious is a word that is used a lot. So I want to give it a very specific meaning. Sub subconscious, and, and this begins to relate to the chakras, which everybody here these days knows the word chakras. But there's many clearer ways to understand the chakras than are usually tossed about. The chakras are the astral body, the energy self. This is where the energy pattern of our consciousness is stored. I'm not gonna go into it in great length in that, but to just say that the subconscious is everything that's already happened, everything that's already accomplished. And that the psychologists know this because they know stored in the subconscious is the memory of being a baby, the disappointment of being a toddler, you know, things we don't remember, but they remember us, so to speak. They, they continue to influence us. Subconscious, the way I'm using it, does not only goes all the way back that way, it goes through all the previous lifetimes too. Reincarnation, karma, the chakras, all of these are very interrelated systems. If you go, as, as it happens, onto the YouTube channel, I have... I recently gave 22 classes on karma, reincarnation, and the chakras. I've, I've taught it multiple times over the years, but the most recent, I like it the best because it was the most recent, but I'll just leave it there. So the subconscious is everything that we've already accomplished that we're already familiar with. And it influences us, of course. We, we have predispositions in countless ways because they're familiar to us whether it's familiar from this lifetime that we remember, or we don't even know why we have a predisposition. I like to live in the desert. I want to go to Italy. I think I'm going to marry a tall man. I want four children and I'm going to call them Brian and Henry and you know, just all these things that we just make up because they're familiar to us some of that's the subconscious influencing us. So many people in their lives essentially just keep living through the subconscious because they just keep doing what they've always done before. They don't creatively innovate. They don't radically shift from what they already know. They don't seek new realities, new experiences. They're comfortable with what they are and they just keep doing it. Uh, the superconscious is the part of our awareness that is linked to our greatest potential, 
It's the it's where we innovate. It's where we get new ideas. It's where we get new inspirations. It's where we recreate ourselves over and over again. It's where we're always thinking not what's familiar and comfortable, but what can I? How can I get bigger? The subconscious mind, by its very nature, is contractive because it's already done, and we're just repeating it. The superconscious uh, mind, by its nature, is expansive because it's taking us to be something more than we already are. And the superconscious links ultimately to infinity, to divinity. And because we haven't yet realized that part of ourselves, we're, we're drawn to it, whether we're drawn to it powerfully or not. The conscious mind is essentially the battleground between these two forces. And it's the objective shared reality that we all live in. But if one examines oneself, you realize that we're always trying to make a choice between, do I accept the unknown, the new, the more exciting, the creative, that's going to take more energy and is going to be more of a nail biter? Or do I just stay where I'm comfortable, stay in the same job, marry the boy next door, raise my children the same way my mother raised me, you know, and, and, and all the time we're making a decision between following the lower energy path or raising our energy to the higher, whether remaining as contracted as we are or trying to expand. And, and this, is, this is what life is. Do I get up early and meditate for a long time or do I just lie in bed for another hour and read a magazine? You know, it's just like every single day. Do I have nothing but ice cream for dessert or do I eat the salad before I eat the ice cream? You know, it's, do I... Do I wash the dishes before I go to bed or do I just want to watch two more television programs and then fall asleep? It's, it, we're, we're constantly between expansion and contraction between higher and lower energy. So it's very, it's very practical. It's also very esoteric. It can go way out there. Subconscious mind is tied to the vrittis and the chakras. The subconscious mind represents unresolved karma. I mean, there's all kinds of wildly wonderful things the superconscious mind takes us to self-realization, to God-realization. But it's also just as simple as I just described. What do I choose every day? Which way do I go? And so if you decide to um, permanently or, or you, you keep choosing expansion and you expand and you expand and you expand, would you then stop reincarnating? Would your, you reincarnate until you've reached that divinity? Is that... That's, that's one way of putting it. And the, the, the method of achieving that is that we, again, to put it in very understandable terms, it, the entire spiritual path is, is learning what causes suffering and what brings happiness. And I'm not talking about pleasure and ease and effortlessness. I mean, lasting fulfillment versus that which may promise fulfillment but in the end does not, does not really give us what we want. And so we, we keep incarnating as long as we're trying to get lasting, eternal fulfillment from ephemeral things. And when we finally understand that eternal fulfillment will only come from eternal things, then we, the balance begins to shift. And there comes a point where you just simply know and it's and and seeking happiness, seeking lasting happiness 
through temporary realities, you, you can see the end point on that and you're not drawn to it anymore. Now, if anyone thinks about their own life it, and you've been learning anything at all, you can already see, I thought that was going to make me happy, but it didn't. I thought that way of life was going to fulfill me, but it didn't. But, but we know that we're meant for happiness so we keep looking for what's going to work the next time. Now, the mistake here is to think that therefore we can't fall in love, we can't marry, we can't make a home, we can't have a successful career, we can't be ours. Of course you can. You can do all of those things. It's not whether you do them, it's whether or not you understand where your fulfillment really comes from. And now, as my fulfillment coming because because you, you are in my life and I love you and you love me, is that my fulfillment? Or is my fulfillment the joy of loving? Do I, am I a, a creative person because everybody thinks I'm so terrific when I'm creative and look at all the money I got for selling my paintings? Or do we understand that it's creativity itself, it's being a channel for inspiration, it's losing myself in the opportunity to make something new and beautiful. That's where my fulfillment comes from. And look, I get a lot of money for my paintings and everybody thinks I'm a wonderful artist, but the fulfillment is, is the flow of energy that comes through me. I mean, this is how Swami Kriyananda presented and manifested all of this for us. He was a musician, a singer, a composer, a, a writer, a photographer, an architect, a, a, a public speaker, an, a, an administrator, but all of that was just the, the vehicle for the expression of this divine inspiration that was flowing through him. So when you asked me that question earlier, what he was centered on all the time was attunement with his guru and acting as his guru's channel. That was where his fulfillment came from. And because his guru wanted him to do all those things, he did all those things and he loved them. It was fun. He had lots of fun doing all of that. But his real joy was because he was acting on behalf of his guru. Mm -hmm. And and that's the, um, I, I slightly lost the question, but that's the, that's the balance point that would remind me of what the question was, yeah. was tell me yeah, what no. you asked me. because. Um, no, that's what we're talking about, um, the different states of uh, being. But um, I was also curious, you know, previously you were mentioning um, that with somebody like Srinanda, there's no, uh, you speak of him in present tense, because you say if somebody like that passes away, they don't really leave. There's no, how does that, um, just explain that a little bit more. Do you, wh what do you mean by that? Well, yes, and I do remember your question. Your question was, when do you stop reincarnating? You stop reincarnating when you have no more lessons that, that you need a physical body to learn. That you've, you've transcended the physical world. Material, you understand the material world and there's nothing that you don't understand about it anymore. So there's no need to reincarnate into it again. You may still have to go to the astral world. You may still have to go to the causal world, but eventually you'll be free. Now, the question you asked me just now is how does Swami's consciousness transcend time and space? Even when Swamiji was living, and he was he was marvelously entertaining as a personality, and I loved being around him. And when he died, it took me a long time to realize that he was just never going to show up again because I lived in a different country from him most of the time. And so I would just see him every few months. 
took me a long time to realize he wasn't coming in the door again because his company was just delightful. And he was a wonderful reset. Whenever he would come, everything would come back into order. Whatever was flowing in the wrong side, it would come back in. Um, now, just a moment, the question was, oh yes. But the real communication with him was always internal. And e either, either internal in his company or far away. You'd, I would I would just feel his guidance. I would feel ideas come to me that I knew were being projected from him. When I had decisions to make, I, I would talk to him in my heart and in my meditation and ask for his guidance. And it I would just suddenly know what to do. And I would know what to do on a level that wasn't, well, I figured this one out. It would just be obvious. Well, that's how I should handle this. And that went on for all the years that I knew him. And for most of the time he was alive, I could also talk to him about things. So I could confirm, or, or in many cases, correct, um, which it's harder to do that now because I can't call him or, or exchange an email, but I can still ask his, his help constantly. And I do it constantly. And I just, I feel a certainty a lot of times about what to do and how to do it that is, is has more authority than I myself carry. And I know I'm being guided. We're being guided all the time. <clears throat> we have guardian angels. We have um, friends on the other side. We have spiritual guides. Everybody does, whether they know it or not, whether they're seeking it or, or not. We are living in a universe that has multiple levels of reality and all those levels of reality are always influencing us. Where do you think our ideas come from? People, I mean, like where, from your brain, from your spleen, from your liver, like where do they come from? It's, it's levels of consciousness that exist in the cosmos and we get in tune with those and they're darker and more elevated levels. There's wiser and less wise ways of being and we tune in to, well, this goes back to the chakras and all of that, to whatever vibration matches us. And then we're, we're, we're drawn between the uplifting and either at, at, at best the stationary and at worst the downward pulling energy. And we have to make constant decisions and we're doing it all the time. We just don't know it. We just think, we think, we think in our, <clears throat> arrogance, that we are the source and the cause of who we are. Not at all. We're participating in this great interrelated universe at all times. And what we gradually begin to understand is by meditation and other practices, meditation, devotion, philosophy, attitude, that we can attune ourselves to these um, elevated teachers or just your simply your guardian angel who will help you make the choices that will take you where you really want to go. But these things take a long time to learn, which is why we get to reincarnate over and over again and keep trying until we figure it out. And then we don't need to keep coming back because you don't have to go back to first grade once you've mastered it. You just, it just becomes part of you. You get to move on. And you were talking about the different states. So you were mentioning the astral plane and something else. What are all of those. So you have the waking state, I'm guessing. You have the astral plane. Um, then what, what else do you have? And and where so if you if you pass away, is that when you go to the astral plane or when you sleep or um maybe just talk us through that. 
Okay. There's three, the way it's described, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a person who actually can move. I, I don't have the psychic ability to really see these things, but I, I deeply, I deeply have, I've come to deeply believe that this is true. And this is what the masters teach. This is what Swamiji taught me. Is, is, did Swamiji, did he experience this? Did Swami, did Swami? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sorry, Kevin. He didn't talk about it much, but occasionally he did. And yes, he, he was, he, he was able to see a great deal about, about reality and speak from a more, from a level of, of certainty that oddly enough, I have the same certainty, but I have no basis for my certainty. I just want you to know that my certainty is just, I've lived with these truths for so long. I just, I feel them intuitively is the only way I can put it, but I don't try to persuade anyone. I just say, this has worked for me. And I, and I have the backing of some pretty big authorities, but that's just the way it is. But it, they're, they're basically three levels of reality. And the wonderful thing about the way Swami Kriyananda taught this is, the way I can describe this, it gets very, very esoteric and who can say, but Swamiji was always able to bring it down to something that we could access. And then we could see how you could build on that. So there's basically three levels of manifestation. You have thought, you have energy, and then you materialize it. So anything, I mean, here we are talking on your podcast. At some point, you thought of having a podcast. And then you had to put energy into having a podcast. You, there you are in front of a microphone. You're either in somebody's studio or you're, that's all your equipment. You had the idea to have it. You put energy behind it. And now here we are talking. If you'd never had the idea, if you'd never put the energy behind it, it would never have manifested right? So all of creation follows that same th three forms. There's what's called the causal plane, which is the level of just ideas. There's the astral plane, which is the level of energy. And then there's the material plane. And I, we, as an individual, in Sanskrit, the word is jiva, that which I call I. I exist on all three of those levels. And there's the, the idea, the creative idea that became me. There's the energetic form of me. And then there is the materialized form of me. And, and we, when, once we're in the material plane, we, we don't, we're not so aware of the energy or the causal plane. But everything that we are here, just like your podcast, started with the idea, came through the energy field, and now... Has materialized and it the reincarnational process is that i the energy the causal and energy self the causal and energy body is really how they talk about it focuses in and manifests in a material sense okay just be just because you're now sitting here actually having a podcast doesn't mean the idea and the energy that created that has gone away it's just now manifesting in this form so now i've manifested a physical body because there was a causal and astral pattern that brought me here. And I am not this physical body. I wear this physical body. My astral causal self wears the physical body just as the physical body wears this dress. I can take off this dress and I will still be myself. I won't be changed at all because I take this dress on and off on a quick and regular time frame, and I remember doing it. I don't make that mistake because I've been wearing this body now for 
more than seven decades, I think it's me. But what happens when we die, and this is verified all over the place now by people's death and return experiences, which is, what do you know? There's my body lying on that bed, and here I am floating on the ceiling. And they say, I, I, you know, that body's not me. This is me. This is who I've always been. It's just I was wearing that body for so long, I began to think that that was me. I just lost focus here. So then we go to the astral world and, and we hang out in the astral world. And we have lots of friends over in the astral world. We can And we see things a little differently because we're seeing now energy fields, not just physical objects. And from the astral world, if you're advanced, you can see the physical plane. That's what where all the angels are coming from and the guardian angels and your, your mother who passed away, who comes to you in a critical moment, whatever it might be, is because they still exist. They're just not wearing bodies. As my friend told me after her husband died, she said, he's still with me. She said, it's just a little harder to communicate with him than it was when he was living in his body. So most people, we go to the astral world, we hang out for a while, we learn more things, we see old friends, we progress, and then gradually we get restless. Our, our spirit gets restless because we know we have more work to do that can only be done on the material plane. And so we bring our energy and our causal and our energy body into some woman's womb and we start the whole thing over again. And we do the whole cycle again until we've learned everything that we need to learn on the material plane. And then we just go from the astral to the causal. And eventually we are only in the causal and eventually we don't need to, we, we shed all of it. And that's complete God realization. But I don't have to worry about that right now. I'm busy on this one. This is yes. enough to keep me. <laughs> Beautiful. No, that was a really, um, a really detailed explanation. And I, I really appreciate it. You know, it clarified um, that quite a lot. And uh, they, I can see there's a lot of beauty in that, you know, of, of constantly releasing you know, knowing that you are not just this, um, I can see a lot of reassurance and, and, and beauty and, um, you know, if things go bad, you it, it's not the be all and end all. It provides that sense of, of calm. Yeah, it, you know, precisely. It's like I've, I've ex when I was I, I'm a very, very strong minded person and very independent minded. And even though I have all this conviction and I have unlimited devotion for my teacher, Swamiji, I just unlimited because I, I tested and, and watched him for 45 years. You know, he, he won my confidence. My, my first loyalty to him would have been uh, misplaced if it, hadn't, if it hadn't been proven, you know. I started with great interest, but, but I, I just started experimenting. Just what if this were true? What would it mean? How would it impact things? How would it change my behavior? How would it influence my attitudes? And I became convinced from experience, not from dogma. You know, if this were true, and I, you know, you have scriptures and saints and masters writing it, it's not like I'm just making it up. If this were true, how would it impact? And if I start living with these as my attitudes, how does it change my life for the better? And I just started thinking this way because my goodness, it worked. It just, things started falling into place. Mm -hmm. And I began to know how to behave. And I began to have the power to behave 
in ways that were so much more beneficial to my happiness and to the people around me and to my ability to create and to use my talents. It's just, it's very, very practical. It's quite far out, but it's also extremely practical. It's just, I, I no longer feel like I'm just adrift without a paddle, which is how I felt before I came upon this path. Lots of waves, lots of motion, lots of stuff happening, but I never knew what or why or who or anything. And this has been, I, Swami Kriyananda is my pole star. That's how I think about it. You know, the pole star is just the fixed point of reference that, that, that allows you to, to, you know, to expand wildly, but you ne you're never lost because you can always look at that pole star and know where you are in relation to it. And that's what these teachings have been for me. It's just like, if this is true, and now I say, because this is true, therefore this is the way for me to extricate myself from this mess or solve this mental attitude or ease this mental burden or you know, resolve this disharmonious feeling. And that's when I was saying earlier what Swami Kriyananda did. He had many, many things happen, but he always understood what the fundamentals were and therefore how to navigate it. And that was far more instructive and beneficial to us than if nothing had ever happened. Mm, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, so unfortunately, time has flown past uh, with such an interesting conversation. Um, but I just wanted to know for those listening, um, is there any sort of key takeaways or things that they can start to practice um, at home to begin this cultivation uh, that you have spent your life working towards? The, the, uh, a fundamental practice, and I'm not going to say it's the fundamental, but a fundamental practice comes out of what I said about subconscious and superconsciousness. Um, spiritual growth, the in increase of happiness, maturity as a human being, it's not an all or nothing proposition. We don't go from being six to being 26. There's a long cycle in between in which we gradually improve. So in, in terms of spiritual life, which we, we usually come to as adults, the concept is it's directional. And instead of thinking it's all or nothing, think simply in terms every moment of every day, I can do a little better than my worst. I may not be able to achieve my best, but if I just do a little better than my worst, the direction of my life is always going to be forward. And we tend to want the, the quick and dramatic solution and we can't get the quick and dramatic, we say, oh, to hell with the whole thing. And we just dive back into the, into the cesspool. But far more realistic, and, and I mean, in a very simple example, you're upset with someone, they've done something you don't like. Do you begin to scream and pound on them with hard objects? Or, or can you just be a little better than your worst and just hold your breath, take a walk, come back and in some sort of more sane, even nonviolent communication, necessarily express your upset, but in such a way that will take you forward instead of driving you back. If you don't want to wash the dishes before you go to bed, I don't like to wash the dishes. I like, I'm not much of a housekeeper, but sometimes I'm not going to wash them before I go to bed, but I will rinse them and stack them. <laughs> so my worst 
is I just don't even clear the table. My best is that, I mean, my best is that I get them all put away, but in between I'll rinse them and stack them. And even though that sounds like so little, if in every circumstance you do a little more good and a little less harm, you'll find your life completely changed. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Oh, well, um, seriously, thank you so much for being on here. Um, it You have um, displayed such amount of wisdom, uh, deep wisdom that um, is just, I'm very grateful to uh, listen to it. And I'm sure many other people will gain some deep insights from this. So thank you once again for joining us, Asha, all the way from California as well. Uh, very much appreciate it. Alexa, I'm so glad you invited me. I'm delighted to meet you. And I do hope that something of what we shared will be of benefit to others. So thank you for the honor. I'm very grateful for it.